section eighteen of the life of john churchill duke of marlborough by louise creighton this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter nine romilly's part one by the twenty fifth of april seventeen o six marlborough was again at the hague where he was much annoyed at the backward state of the preparations for the next campaign the margrave of baden as usual would not stir from his palace at rastadt the small remnant of the imperial army in italy had been entirely defeated before eugene could get together the troops which he was to lead to their relief in spain the wonderful success of lord peterborough had led to new complications he was more suited to cope with overwhelming difficulties than to command in times of prosperity the court of the archduke charles was distracted by quarrels and every post brought complaints of peterborough's overbearing temper louis the fourteenth meanwhile had been as active as usual and his armies were ready to take the field in every quarter a large army of french and spaniards under philip v was preparing to march against the archduke charles whilst the duke of berwick kept the portuguese at bay marlborough heard nothing but dispiriting news he had been so disgusted with the conduct of the dutch deputies and generals in the last campaign that he had made up his mind not to carry on the war in the netherlands again but to lead his army into italy where together with eugene the one colleague whom he could entirely trust he hoped to win a victory as great as blenheim from vienna however he was urgently begged to command on the moselle this was soon shown to be an impossibility as the german princes were not ready meanwhile his italian plan grew still more hopeless for the troops of the various allies especially the danes and the prussians were so slow in arriving that he had not enough troops whom he could command unconditionally the dutch were as timid as ever at the thought of any distant operations and some successes of villar over the margrave of baden on the upper rhine so terrified them that they employed marlborough to give up all thought of italy and stay to defend them they promised if he would do so to free him from the control of the field deputies either by allowing him to choose them himself or by giving them secret orders to obey him in everything marlborough was obliged to yield and with a heavy heart he gave up his favourite plan of a campaign in italy there seemed little prospect of doing anything in the netherlands the french were still securely entrenched in their camp behind the deal and marlborough feared that this campaign would prove as ineffective as the last but by a decided move he changed the face of affairs he made preparations for the siege of namur and villeroy received orders to risk a battle rather than let namur fall into the hands of the english he therefore left his camp and marched upon tirmont marlborough sent pressing orders to collect his troops and full of joy at the prospect of a battle marched to meet the french villeroy was confident of victory judging by the events of the last campaign he thought himself superior as a general to his opponent and he had under him the king's household troops who were renowned as the best soldiers in france early on the morning of the twenty third of may he took up a strong position on mont saint andre 
part of an elevated plain which forms the highest ground in brabant on it the meugne the deal and the great and little get take their rise and as they flow but sluggishly they make the ground at their sources and along their banks marshy and wet the plain is dotted with villages and small woods villeroy had posted almost his whole cavalry on his right between the meugne and the village of romilies in front of a mound known as the tomb of Odomond. his centre extended from romilies to Ofu, and his left from Ofu to anderkirk the whole presenting a concave shape marlborough had intended to occupy the position of mont saint andre himself but only on the morning of the twenty-third had he got all his troops together and heavy rains during the night made it difficult for the infantry to get on quickly he pushed on over the lines of the enemy which he had destroyed the year before the morning was foggy and it was nearly noon before the two armies as the fog dispersed came in sight of one another they each numbered about sixty thousand men and marlborough who was now free to act as he liked without asking permission of the deputies determined to attack at once he saw in a moment the weakness of the enemy's position their lines extended in a concave shape whilst he occupied the middle of the circle and so could bring his troops to bear upon any point in the battlefield quicker than could his opponents the key of the position was the tomb of Ottomond. if he could take this he would command the whole field his plan therefore was to make a feigned attack on the enemy's left so as to disconcert their arrangements and draw off attention from the right then he would attack tavier and press on to the tomb of Ottomond orders were therefore given for the infantry which marched on marlborough's right to advance against anderkirk villeroy at once drew some of his infantry from the centre and marched to its relief meanwhile a vigorous attack was made on tavier and villeroy realized too late that it was on his right not on his left that the main effort of the enemy was to be made he ordered reinforcements to march to tavier but it was taken before they could arrive. Tavier, once taken, over Kirk charged the French cavalry, but these were the famous household troops, made up in great part of young nobles who cared only for fame and were indifferent to safety. The Dutch cavalry was driven back, and Marlborough hastened to the spot with fresh squadrons. In the confusion, whilst he was busy encouraging his troops, he was surrounded by some of the enemy who had recognized him he was thrown from his horse and was in great danger of being taken prisoner till his aide-de-camp dismounted and gave him his horse his equerry advanced to hold the stirrup for him and whilst he did so his head was shot off but marlborough escaped alive and though bruised by his fall led on the charge himself the troops were fired by his spirit and before their vigorous attack the enemy gave way the danish and the dutch troops charged at the same time and the french were driven back round romilies whilst the allies gained the height of Ottomond. the day was lost but villeroy and the elector still hoped to make a stand at Ofu. the whole field was in such confusion that they hoped to be able to form their broken troops before the allies could assemble to attack them 
Marlborough, however, at once sent part of the English horse against them, and they were forced to evacuate Ophu. They retreated in good order, the elector encouraging his troops by his own bravery. But a successful attack made by the English horse on the Bavarian and Spanish regiments so terrified the mass of the French army that they turned and fled, plunging through the great get in the wildest confusion. Their own baggage wagons broken down and overturned in the hurry hindered their flight, and immense numbers were taken prisoner, whilst all their baggage and most of their artillery fell into the enemy's hands. The battle had lasted only three hours and a half, but the pursuit lasted till two in the morning, up to the very walls of Louvain. Marlborough and Overkirk halted at Meldert, within two miles of Louvain, and from thence on the morrow Marlborough sent letters to the Duchess and Godolphin with the joyful news. Having been, he writes, all Sunday, as well as last night on horseback, my head aches to that degree which I must refer you to the bearer. I shall only add that we beat them into so great a consternation that they abandoned all their cannon. At night in the marketplace of Louvain, Villeroy and the elector held an anxious consultation by torchlight. They decided that they could not hold the city, and fled on to Brussels, abandoning all the open places in the country to the enemy. In this great victory all the Allied troops distinguished themselves by their brave fighting. The French suffered from their overconfidence, and above all, from the superiority of Marlborough's generalship. His great ability is shown most clearly by this battle. The victory was owing to no lucky chance, to no superiority of force. In an equally matched battle, Marlborough, by his wise arrangements, by his rapidity in seizing every opportunity as it occurred, by his constant presence and activity in every part of the field, had driven the enemy from a strong position and scattered them in hopeless confusion. The fighting, though severe, had not lasted long, and the losses were not nearly so heavy as at Blenheim. In killed, wounded, and prisoners, the French lost 15,000 men, whilst the Allies lost over 3,000. The results of this victory were surprising to Marlborough himself. At Louvain he was received with joy, and thence led his army across the deal, which the French were too dispirited to defend. Brussels, Malines, and all the chief towns of Brabant opened their gates to him. He promised that their liberties should be observed, and entered Brussels in triumph on May 28, 1706. Everywhere the inhabitants gladly threw off the yoke of France, and proclaimed with enthusiasm the Archduke Charles, King of Spain, and overlord of the Netherlands. Ghent, Bruges, Oudenarde, and the chief towns of Flanders followed the example of Brabant and the French were obliged to desert the line of the Scheldt and to fall back almost to their own frontier. It is not to be expressed, wrote Marlborough to Godolphin, the great success it has pleased God to give us by putting a consternation in the enemy's army, for they had not only a greater number than we, but all the best troops of France. Marlborough next proceeded to besiege Antwerp, and here he expected a lengthened resistance but the French troops within the city quarrelled with the Spanish and Flemish part of the garrison who surrendered the town to Marlborough, whilst the French were allowed to retire. 
ostend was then besieged it had a strong garrison and the soldiers were full of courage for they remembered that a hundred years before it had taken three years and a loss of eighty thousand men to reduce the city but marlborough carried on the attack with such vigour that ostend fell after a siege of nine days marlborough then moved his camp to superintend the siege of minon this fortress was situated on the lys and was one of the masterpieces of vauban the great french military engineer in a desperate attack upon the fortifications marlborough lost fourteen hundred men in two hours but the garrison also suffered heavily and after a siege of twenty-three days minon fell the lys was the boundary between the netherlands and france louis the fourteenth anxious at least to protect his frontier summoned his ablest general vendome from italy to command the army in the netherlands but vendome found the troops so dispirited that he did not dare to venture upon any decided action marlborough was allowed to besiege without opposition dendermonde a town which he desired for the safety of his winter quarters dendermonde was considered perfectly safe from any enemy it was so situated at the conflux of the scheldt and the dender that the governor by opening the sluices could flood the surrounding country they must have an army of ducks to take it said louis the fourteenth but the weather favoured them and the city fell after a few days that place wrote marlborough could never have been taken but by the hand of god which gave us seven weeks without any rain the rain began the next day after we had possession at another strong town on the dender surrendered on october fourth after a siege of twelve days marlborough would have liked to go on to the siege of mons but was prevented by the timidity of the dutch and settled his army in winter quarters some along the dender some in the different towns of brabant End of section 18.